Welcome to Rasslin Memories Online. I'm Glenn Broggett with you this week with this very special interview. My guest worked for seven plus years as an editor and writer for the WWE, working on such publications as WWE, Raw, and SmackDown. He was also the author of the book WWE Legends and also has done some work as a contributor for Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the mecca of pro wrestling magazines. And that's still going today. He's with us uh, to talk about his latest book. Uh, uh, this is the most ambitious I've, book I've read in some time. A full-on look back at the entire history of pro wrestling, or as much as he could cram into 300-plus pages, titled Pro Wrestling Fact, All That's Left to Know About the World's Most Entertaining Spectacle. With us to talk about the rich, sometimes tangled and warped, but always interesting history of pro wrestling is our uh, guest today, author Brian Solomon. Hey, welcome to Wrestling Memories. Uh, let's talk about this book. Thanks for coming on. Sure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's, it's really great. To, I love talking about it. And, you know, it's out. It just came out and I'm, I'm really excited. And it is really kind of like my true labor of love. Yeah, this thing is uh, well put together. Uh, you sent me a copy here. I got in the mail at the end of last week, and I've been reading through it. Taking, I haven't been reading from start to finish because I've been just kind of reading sections of it, and I've been liking what I've been reading so far, and I can't wait to finish the rest of the book. But before we get into talking about pro wrestling fact, we got to get to know a little bit about you up here in the, in the northern part uh, of the United States, up here in Minnesota. Let's get to know a little bit about you, John sure. Solomon, and some of your uh, your wrestling backstory. You mentioned, or I mentioned earlier, you worked for seven years for the WWE. Uh, talk a little bit about that, how you got involved in the pro wrestling business, and you know what actually initially you know, got you as a fan, too. We can go even back further than just your, uh, your, your professional credentials. Let's talk about your love of pro wrestling, how it encompassed into a career. Sure. Well, <clears throat> well I had been a fan uh, since I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, so to work for WWE for me was, you know, literally a dream come true, not even an exaggeration. It was to the point where, you know, I would have to stop and think, is this really actually happening? <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I I tried to, there's two different kinds of people that work there generally, I found. There's, you know, people that are really crazy fans of it, and then there's people that really don't care about it, and they're very corporate people, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's something to be said for both of those types of people, quite frankly, because a lot of times the super fans really wouldn't have the competence and then a lot of times, really corporate people, well, they didn't have the product knowledge or the passion for it. So, uh, honestly, I tried to bring both to the table, and, you know, it was my pleasure to do that there for years. What I mean by that is I had been a fan from when I was a child, and I had developed this, like, encyclopedic knowledge of, of wrestling history just because I, you know, I don't know, maybe I'm a little OCD, and I just <laughs> was really passionate about it. But I also had a legit, you know, writing, publishing editing background so I, I i wanted to make clear make that clear to them when they brought me in um you know i had been watching from when i was a kid and because i was a writer the way i approached it was from a writing point of view you know i first became a fan around the time of wrestlemania 3 mm-hmm. uh, i was about 12 years old so the lead up for wrestlemania 3 with hulk hogan and andre the giant and ricky steamboat and randy savage that's the stuff that really grabbed my attention and uh, um as soon as I got old enough to really be able to write, I started writing about wrestling. You know, I, I was I was covering local indie events in my neighborhood for, for nothing, for, like, local newspapers and things. And I started a wrestling column in my college newspaper called The Wrestling Lowdown. Started sending my material out to uh, wrestling magazines, which, unfortunately, at that time, there were a lot more than there are now. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, I didn't have any success at that time because I was so young. So in terms of getting like a real job writing about wrestling. So, so you, had the, you, had the, you had the aspirations of being the next Bill Apter or uh, Craig Peters. Well, let me tell you, I really did. I, those, are, those are guys I looked up to. I sent stuff out to Bill, who later I can honestly say became a friend. And that's an honor that people that you were previously groveling to for a job <laughs> are now your friends. Um, I sent to um, uh, George Napolitano, who at the time had okay. magazines. I sent over to Vince Russo, who was the editor of WWF magazine at that time, and uh, other places like that. And, it, you know, it didn't really go anywhere, so I had to kind of work for a living for a while. <laughs> and then I got a job, you know, still doing writing and editing. But later on, it just so happened when I was looking for something better, um, that I saw an ad for a position at WWF at the time, a, a copy editor position, and I tried it again. This had been like four or five years after I had graduated college, so I was kind of out there in the workforce, and I wound up getting the job. It started out as kind of like a joke, like, hey, let's apply to this job. You know, who knows? Sure. You never know what could happen. A shot in the I dark, actually got know? the job. Yeah, I got the job. And uh, what were some of the first assignments that you got once you got into the Fed uh, on the publication side? Uh, what, what some of the beat that you covered, some of the, the people you worked with? Well, when I first got my foot in the door, it was only as a copy editor, which was kind of like a glorified proofreader. you know. And, and mm-hmm. I, I was happy to do that, I mean, because I knew it would lead to other things. I knew I could write, and I knew I had the product knowledge. So at first, for the first few months, literally my job was, you know, proofreading the designs for the ring apron and, <laughs> and t-shirt designs and there's actually somebody who checks all those things and it was me a video game instruction booklets and all that but eventually uh, they saw that i knew my stuff and that i could write and so when a writing position opened up on the magazine they, they bumped me up and i'll never forget my first big writing assignment that i got was interviewing michael psa okay for a story that i had pitched myself which was even better. I pitched a story at that time, Michael Hayes, and I think he still is actually, was on the creative team for WWE, and I pitched this idea of why don't we have Michael Hayes, who's this legendary tag team guy, why don't we have him evaluate the current tag teams in the WWF and just kind of give us like a report card on the teams? And they let me do it. I met him in the in the WWF gym that they have on, on premises. Mm-hmm. We sat down in between his, his workout. He was totally gracious and and that would be the pattern for most of the interviews I did there. The guys were real professionals for the most part. He was great to talk to, and he always was. Mm-hmm. Now, did you come along during the Attitude Era when you started working for him? Or what, what about was the time frame? I started in 2000, and I, I made it to 2007. So I would have to say, when I got there, this is how I would describe it. Mm-hmm. Creatively, creatively speaking, the Attitude Era had probably just peaked. Okay. Like, maybe a couple of months earlier. But from a business standpoint, it still had about a good solid year to a year and a half left in terms of like the Attitude Era kind of soldiering on before it kind of gave way to more of like the, I guess people like to call it now the Ruthless Aggression Era or whatever they call it, but more of like the the kind of John Cena and Batista, Brock Lesnar, Randy Orton, that era. But when I came in, it was right around the time that Triple H and The Rock was the top feud. Um, Austin was, Foley had just retired. Austin was um, out with with his neck surgery, uh, and it was really all about Rock and Triple H for a little bit when I got there. 
Mm-hmm. And also, you happen to be in there. You mentioned two thousand into two thousand and one. You got to see the the sea changes up close uh, with uh, yeah. the whole end of the the Monday Night War thing, and uh, with the WWE uh, winning out, uh, Vince buying uh, out, out the uh, WCW uh, from the former owners. And what was that? The, the atmosphere of I mean, you already uh, this this battle uh, had been going on previous to you joining the company, and you probably followed as a fan this week by week battle at one point. Uh, McMahon and, and WWE were on the ropes. WCW became the fat cat. WWF learned how to build their talent thanks to uh, the, the very experienced pro wrestling minds like your Jim Rosses and other guys working and finding these guys. Uh, but what was what was that like uh, to, to be there at the, the end when they could put their flag in the WCW territory and uh, ultimately become the winner of this uh, multi-year battle, millions and bodies were were sacrificed in the name of uh, the Attitude WCW battle. Well, it really was an unbelievable time, and I absolutely was within the 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 tower when all this was going on. So I went from being somebody who, as you said, was following very closely the Monday Night War. I was one of those. I was one of those poor guys that was switching back and forth from, you know, uh, TNT to USA for three hours every night, losing my mind every every week on a Monday night. And now here I am inside watching this whole thing go on. I remember right around the time I, I went there, it was just at the time of the Radicals, when Chris Benoit oh, yes. and Eddie Guerrero, Dean Malenko and Perry Saturn jumped ship, ship from WCW. So I quite literally went from one week, you know, reading the website try to find out what was going on and then the next week i was in the building hearing from people what was actually going on and uh the the war itself the monday night war was it had peaked again by the time i got there wcw was on life support quite honestly by the time you get to like you know early 2000 wcw was really on life support at that point and but but the war was still going on because bischoff and russo that whole era happened while i was working there and you know, we're we're watching every week with bated breath what's going to happen and, and who's going to win this thing. And then it just happened. It was the craziest thing. We got an email before anybody heard about it anywhere. There was a mass company email that went out in a very matter-of-fact way that just said, we have bought WCW. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think at the time, our CEO was a guy named Stuart Snyder, who had a lot of contact in the Turner organization, or really the Time Warner organization. And he really, he doesn't get a lot, enough credit. He actually really brokered a lot of that deal. He was able to make it happen where WCW was just being kind of auctioned off to the highest bidder, and he was able to kind of get the WWF in there uh, to be able to make that purchase. And again, it was this matter-of-fact email that went around, Mm-hmm. And we all just kind of looked each other, at each other like, you've got to be kidding me. Is, is this really happening? You know, I, even as fans, which there were a lot of us in the magazine department, we were completely blown away. Well, yeah, because there was other possible scenarios that were going on at that time. I mean, there was the Fusion deal, uh, apparently, with uh, Bischoff that uh, was Bischoff, re- yeah. really, really close to uh, becoming a reality. But it was 11th hour pullout, I think it was the uh, lack of the television factor that really uh, kind of soured that deal. And then when you look at what Vince paid for that library for WCW, the name, the library, and the business, he made... He, I mean, he's making huge money off that return because it was basically in, in the corporate world that was peanuts for what was a company that was worth that was beating his his per, quote unquote ass a couple of years earlier. Well, I, th- I think 
wasn't it about? I think it was about six million dollars. Yeah, it, it was. It was single di- single digits under. It was under ten million, and, and that boggled my mind. I mean, because I mean, look at the, at how much tape and stuff that were in the libraries. If you've seen the way Vince has rolled it out, or the company has rolled it out through the years, they've been able to have really compre- good, comprehensive collections of of, of certain superstars. <laughs> they've done done some great stuff with the Hall of Fame. Uh, they had the on demand thing for a while that uh, segued into the network that people are starting to you know younger generations and, and older generations are revisiting and discovering this stuff so at the end i mean for the six million or whatever it was this thing uh I, I, you have to say this is the ultimate in returns and, and what a sweet way to uh seal the victory well the, the reason that it went so cheaply really was as you said there was no television so uh, from what i understood vince had when wcw was on its last legs vince had gone to time warner before the company went out of business and tried to buy it out saying, okay, we're going to run it on TBS and TNT. So we're going to run WCW on your networks as if nothing happened. Just keep it going. Mm-hmm. Have that but continuity, that, yeah. Yeah, that's what he wanted to do. And in hindsight, that might have worked a lot better than what actually happened. But the problem was the new kind of powers that be in Time Warner had decided they didn't want any more wrestling on their networks. They felt like it was a black eye to the network even though it had kept the networks going for 30 years, they felt like, okay, we don't want to be associated with this anymore. So then Vince didn't want it anymore, not to mention the fact that USA Network kind of balked at the idea of having Vince with wrestling programming on a competing network. So they had to wait until the whole thing went belly up, and then it was so damn cheap because anybody that bought it wouldn't be able to do anything with it unless they had television, which, luckily, as it turned out, Vince McMahon happened to already have television, so he was able to do something with it. Well, you know, in in the WCW side, it was that corporate disconnect from the real history of uh, what pro wrestling was to to Turner's channels. I mean, starting out with the Mm -hmm. Superstation back in the day. I mean, Ted Turner, you know, was very grateful for pro wrestling and in turn, you know, rewarded pro wrestling with these great time slots, but they gave them, you know, the Georgia championship wrestling days. I, I mean, yeah. and then the, the changeover with Crockett, I mean, the, the clash of the champion specials, all this stuff, uh, pro wrestling and WTBS and then soon to be TBS was so synonymous. And, and then later on with TNT with the, you know, the nitro program really busted things out but it was just so synonymous that when you know ted was kind of aced out and didn't really have a voice uh you know with the aol time warner merger uh, i mean it was almost the, it was the beginning of the end when that merger hit because there was guys coming in that hey said let's just throw a block of friends or seinfeld reruns in and i bet we could get just as good a numbers or it'll be a little less cheaper than pro wrestling just to run the syndicated route maybe we can put these you know, what they've done with original programming on TBS. They really wanted to veer away and just become another one of those generic superstations that airs blocks of old reruns. I mean, it's almost like the Nickelodeon TV land model, but with more modern fare. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, when, when pro wrestling became really being fought on a national stage at that point, unfortunately, what happened is the regional side of it almost became a detriment. Mm-hmm. So the idea of of Turner's company being this Southern wrestling organization, which in the territorial days had been really good for them and had made them strong with their audience in the national days and trying to compete nationally, it hurt them at least in in the eyes, certainly in the eyes of within WCW itself with when Eric Bischoff came to power, he wanted to kind of 
distanced the company as much as he possibly could from this southern, what he saw as a stigma. And it, it's really bizarre to look at how they were not able to successfully do that. And yet when you look at the WWF, they also had, in the territorial days, they had a regional flavor to them where they were built around ethnic attractions that would appeal to New York area urban audiences. You know, they had their Puerto Rican champion, their Italian champion, they had their Polish star, their Greek star, and all that stuff. But they were able to transcend that and become a national powerhouse and and graduate from that regional kind of era that they were in, whereas WCW did not survive that, and they, they were always seen as the Southern Wrestling Company. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and, and Vince did at one time, you know, uh, with, uh, you know, he did try with the national, when he was doing his national expansion, he uh, bought in, uh, you know, thanks to that now infamous sale of uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling stock, uh, of course, Briscoe Brothers being a part of it, one of the main catalysts uh, to help get this uh, sale, majority sale complete. But Vince, you know, just by buying it, that was that one I think Black Eye, I, I think it had to have been, and it really caused some uh, sour feelings between him and Ted Turner, was uh, buying that time on you know, the old Georgia Championship time slot for that period of time. And then basically kind of going, you know, Vince didn't exactly follow the, all the protocol that went with that deal because the, the part of the deal was to call for, for uh, you know, some TV studio type wrestling instead of just showing the stuff that was on other WWF programming at the time. So it was a little bit different. And the fans... You know, they loved, you could definitely tell how tied into their Southern wrestling at the time mm-hmm. that, you know, there was, it was on for a period of time, but then Vince grew disenchanted with Ted and, you know, nobody was getting along. And of course, uh, Ted allowed, you know, Bill Watts to put in, in some of his product. And of course, Ole brought in uh, the championship wrestling from Georgia Saturday morning time slot. It was a, it was a very early time slot, but it was still, Ted's way of uh, kind of holding on a little bit to some of that Southern style, both with the watch show that was getting good ratings on, on TBS, and you also had that Saturday morning uh, show that, that was kind of uh, Georgia Championship light until Crockett came in and, and, and bought it up from under uh, Vince. Vince basically said, uh, you can have it, took some of that money, I guess, and made a bigger investment with WrestleMania. But, you know, wow, when you think about it... Uh, Quite, quite the dealing. Yeah. They really held on to that southern, southern wrestling. But yeah, that was really kind of the uh, the beginnings of what became that really uh, that, co- that that Coxman one upmanship battle a little bit between Ted and, and Vince. I mean, two guys uh, with very bold personalities and very different perspectives, uh, even on the pro wrestling product. Uh, there's no question about it. I mean, there's. I have a section in the book where I talk about uh, the. The, the WWF's expansion, obviously, that's a very big story in wrestling history. But there were a few points, there were a few bumps in the road. You know, it wasn't as smooth mm-hmm. as sometimes we, we look back on it as, or some, some people might think, or certainly the company w- would portray. I mean, there were bumps in the road, and one of the biggest bumps was the whole Georgia Championship Wrestling debacle, which, as you said, it was one of the only times, really, that a local audience rejected his product because, quite honestly, for the most part, and a lot of people forget this when they talk about how Vince squeezed everybody out of business, pretty much wherever he went, that local audience was more than willing to drop their local wrestling like a bad habit and completely embrace the WWF superstars that were coming in. That was happening more often than not. Um, the TBS situation was an exception. You know, a lot of people forget that. And at the time, the thinking in, in WWF was initially 
and I don't know if this was just a line they were feeding the local promoters or not. The idea was they were going to seep into all these other territories. And for and what they had wanted to do was kind of continue to run the local shows, but just under the WWF banner. So like you said, you know, initially the deal was you're still going to do studio wrestling like Georgia Championship Wrestling. And they were doing that in other places like they did it in St. Louis when they took over um, the wrestling at the Chase yeah. time slot. They were initially producing, WWF was producing wrestling at the chase and that's the show that turned into wwf superstars of wrestling they did the same thing down in houston when they took over paul bosch's operation where they were producing his show houston wrestling they did it in toronto with maple leaf wrestling initially and then it all just kind of got very homogenized Mm -hmm. we're talking with brian solomon author of pro wrestling fact all that's left to know about the world's most entertaining spectacle and we are talking uh about the uh the the territory days, the, the 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 fall of the territory days, and and the rise of McMahon expansion, and some of the uh, some of the the things that happened on the road to expansion for McMahon. We we were talking about how it wasn't just uh, the revisionist history of how everything fell into place like dominoes. We talked about the Georgia Championship Wrestling situation, and uh, I mean Vince, though he knew he had such great a great plan though laid out for this expansion he got some very good minds i mean we talk a lot about when we talk about how vince cherry picked some of the pro wrestlers uh, from around the various territories i mean we'll get into it here in a couple of minutes about the awa and how uh very integral uh, awa was to the initial expansion success of the world wrestling federation but he had a lot of good uh good guys he, he recruited a lot of really smart business well-experienced guys like your jim barnett's and your george scott's i mean vince knew who to look for when he was making his move for this expansion it was an all or nothing he wasn't just going to settle for second best it was go big or go home oh sure it was it was it was in front of the cameras and behind it like you said and george scott i mean george scott had already revolutionized the crockett territory in the 70s you know he he really had a permanent impact on that company and then if, and then it was actually vince senior one of kind of the last things that he did for the company was Vince Sr. was the one that recruited George Scott to come and work for his son because it was sort of like, well, you know, my son is doing this thing and he needs some help and I'm going to bring in some really smart guys to help him out. And, and he helped. He, he was the guy that brought in George Scott. And as you said, Jim Barnett, who, oh, God, I, what an interesting figure that guy is. He's just endlessly fascinating. Well, what, what I, what I want to know about it, and I don't know, this may have to do with uh politics or whatnot i mean he's mentioned uh, throughout the story of pro wrestling's history you you can't you know talk about a certain time in those early golden days of wrestling the kayfabe era without mentioning uh, just what a, a guy jim barnett was uh, for promotions both here in the states and internationally in australia and stuff but i wonder i mean nobody has really uh, put out a definitive book about jim barnett I, and i have to ask is this just because a lot of things uh, aren't mentioned because of the politics or just someone just doesn't want to step up i mean this is a book that has been waiting to be written he's a very mysterious figure he's he's almost like the zelig of pro wrestling the, the guy just pops up in every you know uh, you, you can go back from the 50s up until you know the turn of the century about a 50 year span and the guy he's just kind of like a uh, he's like the power behind the throne in so many situations and uh you know, one of the things where he was, unfortunately, because of his homosexuality in that era, he was really kind of marginalized as a public figure. 
Um, a lot of the promoters were uncomfortable having him be, you know, in the public arena because he was very flamboyant. He was very uh, obviously stereotypically gay, and they were uncomfortable with that. And, and that and that is a big reason why we don't know as much about him as we should, because he was this mysterious behind-the-scenes figure. But crucially important, um, made a lot of friends, made a lot of enemies. I mean, the guy started in the 50s with Fred Kohler doing the old um, wrestling at the Marigold Arena, and mm-hmm. then, which was the national wrestling program at that time. It was the show that made stars out, out of people like Gorgeous George and and uh, Mr. America, Gene Stanley, and Vern Gagne, and, and guys like that. And, and, you know, he went on to, as you said, he founded um, the original World Championship Wrestling in Australia. He, God, I mean, he, he did it all. He brokered the sale of, of WCW, to Te- of Crockett's company to Ted Turner. He, he helped Vince in the beginning when he was expanding. The guy did everything. In fact, one of the last moves that he ever made was he gave Vince, I'm not going to claim he was totally responsible, but he gave Vince the, the, the uh, notion that he should push John Cena as his next big star. I mean, the guy, the guy did everything. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, maybe one day we'll, we'll be able to, to piece together enough for that story because, I mean, that guy was in everything. And you mentioned, uh, the early days at the Marigold and, uh, the name Vern Gagne. And up here in Minnesota, where uh, I'm recording today with you, uh, it wasn't, uh, too long ago that, uh, Vern passed away at the age of 89. And, you know, even though he, he lived to be, you know, such a long life, that even that it was still a little bit of a shock and a lot of sadness, uh, with Vern's passing. Something we knew that was coming here in recent years with his health, uh, going, uh, the way it was with the Alzheimer's. But you want to talk about another one of those guys, uh, who really, who really fought in, in, against McMahon here with the territory, uh, expansion project that Vince was doing, establishing the World Wrestling Federation. Oh, this was, this was a battle that, uh, that got ugly. And a lot of people have, you know, when they talk about how the AWA fell apart, you know, you, there's a lot of opinion about Vern Gagne, how he may have been out of step with the times or, you know, he you know, played too close to, to his uh, heart here. And he, uh, made a few moves that, uh, may have involved some bravado, especially when dealing with, with Hulk Hogan and a few of the other guys who ended up jumping ship. But boy, Vern Gagne was one hell of a fighter, and uh, you know it, it was kind of sad to see the AWA go. But he was one of the last, I think, true warriors who uh, finally threw in the flag. I think maybe Jarrett in the '90s was one of the last, uh, as far as uh, the, the old territory system to to hang tough and uh, endure every battle and every defection to the WWE uh, that his lineup uh, had to deal with through those last few years of uh, the territory days. Yeah, I guess in the in the sense of the traditional territories, probably the last one was Memphis. I mean, they went till about ninety seven, and uh, in, at least in terms of the continental U.S., I mean, the, the Puerto Rico Cologne is still going strong, but but there's limited competition over there, obviously. But for 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 Vern and for the AWA, I mean, God, uh, he, he has to go down as he's the only guy you can name who is at the same time one of the greatest wrestlers, promoters, and trainers of all time. Like, on the short list of all three of those things. I can't think of a single other person that I would put on the short list, on the top ten of all three of those things. And, yeah, you know, I, I mean, you may know, uh, I wanted to, since you're from Minnesota, you know, I feel out of my league. I don't want to be <laughs> dictating to you what I know about 
about the AWA and, and Vern Gagne, but I really do think that the problem with his situation was his, the company he was running, and it's very different from a Memphis or something like that, was immensely successful at one point in time. I mean, in terms of the amount of, of land and just real estate that that territory covered, I don't think there was a bigger territory in terms of how many states, how many circuits they had, how many different markets they were in. So, I mean, from a, from a business standpoint, you have to give the guy credit. But like you said, I think the problem was really from kind of an innovation standpoint. It seemed like he was more than willing, and many of these old school promoters were, he was more than willing to just kind of stick with what worked and not really move beyond that. So, you know, the, the Hulk Hogan phenomenon and all those, those stars that he had that were stolen from him, I mean, if you think about it, with the right amount of creativity, why couldn't he have done what Vince did? I mean, he had half the roster already, but he wasn't able to do it because that was not, it was kind of, it was not in his wrestling vocabulary to turn his company into something like that. Mm-hmm. And he, he just could not change with the times. And, you know, even when, uh, you know, the, all these guys were starting to leave, like, right away with that initial in 1984 or 85 in that period, you know, for the AWA, they still were able to draw in some good houses up until about probably 80, 86. Uh, because 84, 85, you know, Vern was still, he had a few guys around. He also started to uh, get things rolling in 85. In the fall of 85, it was the big uh, television deal with ESPN. That was national uh, television. He still had some uh, syndicated shows going on in his AWA territory. And there was also around that time in 85 when uh, the ESPN show was going, uh, another endeavor that he uh, formed with a couple of the other guys uh, from the territories and their one last dash to try to... Uh, hold down the younger McMahon, the pro wrestling uh, USA project, you know, that also, uh, you know, it was good intentioned, but I mean, at least he was mm-hmm. fighting. I mean, for what it was worth though, in the end, it, you know, you can't put too many of those old school promoters in the, the same room. And, uh, you, you could probably, uh, couldn't even order lunch, let alone try to figure out who's uh, going to get over who. And, you know, for all of it, you know, Vern did fight. I mean, it wasn't just like Hogan left, Ventura left, Okerlund left, Adonis, all these guys started taking off and, and Vern just folded up the tent. You know, he brought in guys like, you know, gorgeous Jimmy Garvin. He had Rick Martell, you know, Stan Hansen, the Road Warriors, you know. Sergeant Slaughter. Sergeant Slaughter, who just left the Fed at the time. You know, these were guys, again, that pro wrestling uh, USA thing. Also uh, bringing in some NWA stars. I mean, the first super class show at Comiskey. I mean, he was putting on big time shows with these promoters and stuff. So it, it wasn't until, you know, they really started digging in with more guys leaving that, that Vern really started to, the, the product started to suffer. I mean, the ESPN deal was good, but if you watch some of those shows from 87 to 90, you know, from the, you know, for a while there from the showboat in Las Vegas, when you would see all the empty seats in the, uh, in a casino, yeah. it was kind of sad. And then when they, uh, they were doing stuff in Rochester at the very last days in 1990, 89, 90, and they were having, the, the arena was so dark you couldn't see anything, but they had flashlights basically to lead them to the ring because it was such a, a small, small crowd. And they even had to go back to the TV studio for a while. They put it in as part of a gimmick for their team challenge thing that was such a, a weird concept. But yeah, they just couldn't draw people. And it was sad considering the fact that they still had national television. They had the ESPN deal. That's really the the issue there is that uh, they try, you know, he did try to to fight back in his own way, but it was almost like it was it was 
too little too late in a way. I mean, I, mean, I sometimes think that one of the, the problems, one of his downfalls, was the fact that he was so, he had so many um, uh, uh, feuds and rivalries, real life, with his own talent and bad blood with his own people that I, it, it was almost like, it, almost, it sometimes feels to me like people were more than willing to screw him over. You know what I mean? And just say, okay, you want me to go work for, um, the competition wants me to go work there? With pleasure. You know what I mean? Bob Heenan told a story about how Vern Gagne was, was, was wanted to kill him, literally. Like, tried to pull a gun on him. There's a, because he, he didn't even bother, uh, uh, you know, going out the right way, or however you might want to describe that. And I think there were a lot of guys that, that did that, that, that at, the, at the opportunity they were given, they were more than willing to, to kind of turn on him because they felt like he wasn't the greatest guy in the world to work for. Mm-hmm. But as history has told, though, uh, the tale for Vern, though, like you mentioned, I mean, the guy, he was a great promoter. He was a hell of an in-ring guy. And the people that he trained, if you took out all of the people that Vern Gagne had up at his farm in Chanhassen teaching the pro wrestling way, the Gagne way, I mean, the pro wrestling landscape would, uh, it wouldn't quite be where it was uh, history-wise. Yeah, without his training camp, I mean, yeah, you're talking about an entirely different version of wrestling history. I mean, uh, God, Steamboat, Flair, Iron Sheik, Ken Patera, Jim Brunzel, so many people coming out of that thing. Brad Rangins. I mean, just uh, a, a whole generation of stars came out of that training camp. Oh. And it went on for a long time. It wasn't even just like, it was, I mean, God, I think, if I'm not mistaken, even um, Shawn Michaels, too, no? Well, Shawn well, I, I think Shawn Michaels got a lot of his seasoning down in, in Texas with uh, Jose Lothario, but I think you know Shawn was still relatively young in the business when he made his way up to uh, Minneapolis, and you'd have to think that Vern would would, would uh, have a, a, an eye, or at least Greg, as far as you know, seeing something in Michaels because that's I mean where Michael started, you know, in the Southwest and and working his way up through the territory, Central States, even for a, a cup of coffee in Mid South and World Class, it was the the AWA with uh, you know him hooking up with Marty Jannetty. Where, where you could really see uh, Michael starting to get it, and, and, and it only got better when they moved uh, to the WWF. But then, of course, with all the good things that Michael's was doing in, in the ring, you know, the behind-the-scenes stuff sometimes uh, overshadowed uh, all of the, the great in-ring that he ended up, you know, he grew to be, the, the, the worker he grew to be. Yeah, and, and God, you can say that of so many people, too. It's just... Uh... You know, there's a there there's a, a a dark side to the business as well. There's no doubt about it, and it sometimes it attracts a certain type of personality. I mean, uh, somebody once explained it to me. One of the people I interviewed for the book that you know you look at the lifestyles of these guys and their personality. In what other field could they possibly <laughs> fit in 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 our society? What else could they do? You know, these are not nine to five cubicle jockeys. These are these guys are. Are, they're they're the Renaissance men. They're just they're the eccentrics. They're 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 the guys that are just not quite all put together. But the dark side of that is they also sometimes have a lot of demons and and a lot of uh, uh, excesses that in their lives. That it's part of what makes them a success. And it's part of what also sometimes causes a lot of problems in their lives. And that's just one of the chapters, too, in your your book. Uh, we're talking with author Brian Solomon, author of Pro Wrestling Fact, All That's Left to Know About the World's Most Entertaining Spectacle. It's one of the areas you cover, uh, you know, a topic matter is some of the, 
the darker side of professional wrestling, you know, you can talk about, uh, you can go from your Chris Benoit to your, your deaths like, uh, the death of Bruiser Brody to even some of the stuff that McMahon had to face down in the 1990s. Kind of a double whammy at the time. I mean, a lot of people remember his battle with the federal government, but for some time as well, he had to deal internally with a couple of guys that included Pat Patterson with, uh, these sexual harassment claims. I mean, that was all over like your Donahue programs and your current affairs at the time too. I mean, that, those, charges and stuff the people who came forward with that that slowly kind of withered away and people remember more for the the battle with the federal government over the steroid issue but vince there was a crap storm man that he enjoyed i mean you this guy i mean robert evans bob evans says the kid stays in the picture i think vince mcmahon definitely those that phrase that would apply to him i mean the 90s man to even just get out of the mid 90s was was a challenge in and of itself to and to rebuild the company by the end of the decade well, it, it really was uh, just the the imperfect storm, you might say. I mean, it, it, it was almost like a blood-in-the-water kind of a situation where things started to go wrong for the company, and then all of a sudden people just started piling on and taking advantage of this is the moment the company is weak and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to strike. And, and there was so much that was happening at one time, and the creative suffered as well, and I've always felt that, the reason the WWF product was so bad during that period was because Vince was checked out. I mean, Vince, the WWF is Vince McMahon. You know what I mean? Especially in that era. So with him under all that stress and checked out, of course the product is going to stink. Of course it is. And, like, you know, you had the, it was like the two-pronged attack. You had the steroid stuff going on, and you had all the sexual misconduct stuff going on at the same time. And, uh, you know, people tend to remember it, more of the steroid stuff today, and I think part of that is because that's what, the, that's what the federal government chose to pursue. The federal government at one time had the option, because they had a, just a mega case against the WWF, of do we include all the sexual misconduct stuff in, this, in, this, um, in these legal proceedings, or do we just focus on the steroids? And they chose to just focus on the steroids. Mm-hmm. So most of the sexual stuff got kind of settled outside, and uh, it got very ugly. I mean, God, Pat Patterson, who I really do believe from everything I've read, and, and I, I did get to know him a little bit, and I worked there, and everything, I really do believe that he unfortunately was taken advantage of in that situation because it was known that he was gay. Mm-hmm. There was a very cynical attitude of, well, people will believe that he did these things, so we're going to accuse him of these things. Um, I can't really say the same of people like Mel Phillips and, and Terry Garvin, who, who very most likely got what they deserved. But, you know, Pat Patterson got sucked into that whole catastrophe, and I don't think it was deserved. But you, you had other things going on, which I didn't even really fully get into all the gory details in my book, because I didn't want to just wallow in the in all the kind of seedy stuff. But, I mean, you had Vince and the, and the female referee. You had... Uh, uh, like I said, the Mel Phillips situation, all happening at the same time of of, of George Sahorian and the steroids and Hulk Hogan swearing up and down that he never took them. I mean, it is a miracle that the company actually survived all that. Oh, and, and you had also had some of the boys speaking out against this uh, stuff with the sexual claims. I mean, um, you know, even in sure. Barry Orton, and you also Barry had Orton. 
And you also had on the steroid side, you had superstar Billy Graham, who was such a, a big part of the late 1970s uh, for Vince Sr. I mean, uh, these guys, it, it must have been some form of betrayal when you got guys with, you know, with the Orton case, you know, coming from a wrestling family and with Graham being one of your marquee attractions for a period of time. This guy was such an influence. And to have the, them all just kind of come out of the woodwork and, and see if they could get this, uh, you know, and, and today, you know, seeing this. You know, and, and online and, and reading these stories, uh, you know, with the network coming up about some of these old re- older wrestlers coming together, uh, trying to get lawsuits going, whether it would be for concussion issues or uh, for them trying to find a piece of the pie as far as, uh, you know, getting a royalty for some of the footage. I mean, it, it seems like another year, another storm. But, it you know, like all the other ones, it seems like Vince, he battles, but he, he always seems to find a way to, to gain some sort of victory. He ekes it out. Well, one of the most uh, interesting things that I ever witnessed backstage, because you talk about superstar Billy Graham, and he was somebody who really went viciously after company in the late 80s and early 90s, really, when the whole steroid thing was happening, and he felt like the company had betrayed him, his body had betrayed him, he was physically falling apart, and he was looking for a scapegoat, and he targeted the company, talking about the steroid culture, and he would later apologize, but he actually even got on board talking about all the sexual stuff. And, and he did later apologize for kind of overzealously making claims. And I know he was one of the people who, was, who had been calling out Pat Patterson for things that he later admitted, and I think Barry Orton did as well, admitted that were kind of trumped up and they just sort of had an axe to grind, which is unfortunate because there are people who really do have, you know, in situations like that, have to come forward. And now, you know, when, when someone like that takes advantage and cynically makes up things that never happen, it sort of makes it look bad for all victims of, of sexual harassment and, and sexual crimes. But I remember being backstage at um, the Baltimore Arena. It was the arena where Superstar Graham had beaten Bruno San Martino for the for the heavyweight championship in 1977. Mm-hmm. And I was backstage for a show there, and it was a big deal because Graham was going to be there. He wasn't on TV. He was just backstage. He had just mended fences with Vince. So this is about 2002 or three around that era when he had mended his fences. And he showed up at the arena to meet everybody, and it was a big moment where, you know, they were going to shake hands and the whole thing, and this is it. And and it was in this place where he had won the title, so it was very important to everybody. And the one person who avoided him at all costs refused to look him in the eye, refused to say one word to him, and was still holding a grudge, understandably so, was Pat Patterson. He would have nothing to do with him. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, I, I remember, too, uh, you know, about it wasn't just Billy Graham uh, speaking out. And this was something that was a, lo- a longstanding feud that thankfully uh, there was some peace made here in just recent years. Uh, I mean, the feud that Vince had with or Bruno, the, the gripe that Bruno even had. I mean, there was a lot of years of uh, just bad feelings that, uh, you know, uh, was it up to maybe, what, two, three years ago? You know, these guys were not talking to each other, and when they were talking, Bruno wasn't exactly uh, all that flattering uh, of Vince and the the way the product had evolved since Bruno left the ring and uh, left the company altogether in the 80s. That's a reconciliation that I never thought would happen. And I, I, I took my kids to Madison Square Garden two years ago for the Hall of Fame to see him go in just because, I mean, the, the, the magnitude of that, really. I mean, 
I don't usually mark out for things in that way anymore, mm-hmm. having been a, a battle-scarred veteran of the, <laughs> of the business as I am. But I was unashamedly marking out because that was something that just needed to happen, and you never thought it would. You really didn't. Because, look, Bruno, he's really one of these old-school Italians, and I could say this because I'm half Sicilian. Mm-hmm. He's one of these old-school grudge-holding Italian, he had that uh, real old-school attitude of, you did me wrong, you are dead to me, and that is it. And uh, if the credit goes to Triple H, I mean, for, for brokering that, making that happen. I, I mean, I had some dealings with Bruno on my way out of the company. Um, Arnold Skolan passed away a few months before I left the company in 2007, and they wanted me to do uh, kind of like a piece on him. And I got the idea in my head, I can't do this article without interviewing Bruno San Martino, even though he was persona non grata. I tracked him down and called him up, and he had a lot of respect for me. He gave me a long interview, and you know, he said this is the first time anybody in the company has interviewed me in an official capacity in, you know, I don't know, 15 years, 20 years. And uh, he, he, at that time, was not very high on the company at all and you know he was just uh, still very still a lot of bad blood and so the it was still shocking to me that years later he would agree to do it and you know i'm glad that he did i try to look at it in a positive way it really makes the hall of fame more kind of legitimate it's very satisfying to his fans to see something like that happen so i'm glad that it happened before he passed away you know I have to ask you, uh, what do you think of today's, uh, you know, with Paul Levesque, uh, Triple H, you know, uh, Stephanie's uh, husband, uh, a guy who's really taken on a hands-on role uh, with the, the bat- behind-the-scenes uh, work with the, the World Wrestling Entertainment and, of course, uh, his pet project being NXT. What do you think about what Hunter has been doing uh, since he has been involved with the inner circle of, of his in-laws? Well, I-, I think a lot of the, the criticisms of him in my personal opinion, of what I saw and witnessed, are really not fair. I mean, look, you're going to catch some heat for the fact that you married the boss's daughter and now you're running the company. Okay, so people are going to have heat with you. All right, that's going to happen. There's no that the people are jealous. You know, people are going to blame you. They see you as one of the boys who kind of like became management. Okay, so you're like... Uh, You know, you're like a turncoat or something. Mm -hmm. But I will tell you what, everything I have seen and everything that I have experienced is that he has a really good head for the business. He has a very different approach from Vince, which I think is going to be really interesting because slowly but surely, as he and Stephanie kind of step in and Vince steps out, which I feel like we are now in that kind of transitional period, we're going to look back on this as the transitional period, Mm-hmm. I think there's going to be a lot of changes in store for WWE and just the product and the, the business approach. Um, Stephanie is very much, in my experience, very much like her father in a lot of ways in my limited exposure to the McMahons. Sure. But Triple H is, is a different, it's hard to explain. It's like he, he has more of a kind of an old school approach, but not an outdated approach. In other words, he's able to take the kind of the old school mentality of what works and adapt it for a modern audience. Mm -hmm. And the best example I can give you of that is NXT. Because we're in a spot right now where NXT is arguably a better product than the the main roster product. Mm -hmm. It's because of him. 
you got the cream. I mean, these guys that he has uh, sought out and recruited. I mean, of course, you got some guys that they're working on in house, but he he got the cream of the indies and the international scene. The product is the in ring itself is, is is even at times people are finding it. Uh, far superior to some of the guys that are working up on the main show and uh, I just the one thing I worry about with NXT is uh, you know when these guys are coming up and you know and, and with Vince still around is you know sometimes I mean from what has been said I mean I'm not in the, the thick of it either you know but from what the things that have been said that Vince isn't completely sold on the whole thing you know maybe because it, it, it is Hunter's project and Vince hasn't been so hands-on with it. You know, he's probably signed off on some of the finances, but he hasn't really gotten fully as fully vested as Hunter has been. And a lot of people are worried that Vince will bring up some guys, they'll get up to the main level and, and kind of die a slow death. You know, whereas there's been some success stories with some of the guys that have come from NXT through the last couple of years, there's been some I've seen, you know, that just haven't really worked out. And it's guys that have come up with lots of smoke, lots of mirrors. And the next week they're jobbing to the gimmick cartoon team. Yes. Yeah. And I've heard a little bit, I'm, I'm kind of on the outside looking in now, but I've heard a little bit about the, the friction there with Vincent and Hunter and, and, and how that might play out in terms of, uh, the NXT guys, but again, I say, even if that is going on, that the more we move forward of Triple H really kind of assuming the control of this company, that's going to become less and less of a factor. And in fact, you know, there's a very strong possibility that NXT could really organically become the alternative brand that they've been praying for, that they desperately tried to create through failure after failure. You know, NXT is on its way to becoming not not a feeder system, not a not a not a developmental, not a farm territory, but kind of a, just this really cool, you know, underground for now alternative to the WWE product, and it and it just grew in a very natural, unforced way. Mm-hmm. We're talking with Brian Solomon. Now we got a few more minutes left in our conversation. We've been uh, talking a lot about the 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 end of the territories and the rise of uh, Vince McMahon, and talking about a few of the things going on in modern day professional wrestling. But we've uh, only scratched the surface on your book. When we uh, let's talk a little bit about what what a, a reader who uh, is curious about this book, what other content lies in between. I, I see that you've this is the a very comprehensive look back. You've went back into the early twentieth century, uh, and and you've taken it all the way till present day but talk about some of the content and how you broke it up in the book as far as chapters go what people can look forward to reading when they check out pro wrestling fact all that's left to know about the world's most entertaining spectacle well the backbone of the book uh is the historical chapter which is uh, the first uh, six or seven chapters of the book are really what i tried to do is create this really comprehensive condensed history of the entire wrestling, professional wrestling business, starting from, well, my, my starting point was the Civil War, because yeah. Yeah, I, I, I looked at that as the moment when the, it really started uh, entering into the American consciousness. It had already been kind of a carnival attraction, and you had uh, soldiers and during the war that were doing it, kind of like the way that baseball grew after the Civil War, and then it started becoming a, a, a spectator attraction. So I started there, and I took it all the way to the present day, really. And that's really the heart of the book, is that history. But, I mean, I've got, I tried to really make it the kind of a book where you can just jump around 
and read different sections. You don't even necessarily have to read it from cover to cover. As we've been talking about, I've got an entire section breaking down all of the territories and what they were like and who their stars were and all that kind of stuff. I've got uh, chapters on some of the scandals, of course, on uh, the promotional battles. I've got an entire chapter devoted to promotional battles beyond just the Monday Night War that we always hear about. Um, I've got a chapter on Japanese wrestling. got a chapter on Lucha Libre. got a chapter devoted to the history of women's wrestling. Um, you name it, tag teams, greatest matches. I mean, I tried to hit everything I could possibly hit. Um, in this book, there, there's capsule biographies of major stars from every era, and I wish I could have done even more of those. But I tried to pick kind of the handful of top top attractions from every era, and I focused in on them specifically. Um, I've got stuff about uh, the, the, the history of the NWA as an organization and what that meant to the wrestling business. Uh, that's in there. Um Hardcore wrestling, you know, even and not and again, not just ECW, but really going back to the beginnings of hardcore wrestling. Start writing, you know, talking about the Sheik and and Bull Curry and and uh, and Irish Danny McShane and and where really started the first steel cage matches, and then getting to ECW. So I'm really trying to give perspective. That's what I wanted this book to be. A lot of times when you talk wrestling, it's tough to have perspective because it's not a business that encourages fans to have perspective and i understand why they do that Mm -hmm. they have different interests than what my interests are in publishing this book so if you're a fan that really wants to have a a full perspective on what this business is and has been about this is the book and your depth of researching and seeking out uh, others who are are well schooled in in the world of pro wrestling and historian wise it was impressive as well. I mean, you had uh, Dave Meltzer do your, your your forward, and you also, we were talking off mic, you were talking about where, where the early days of the NWA and, and the book that Tim Hornebaker put out. So there's a lot of great uh, historians out there. I have a co-host, George Shire, who has just uh, extensive knowledge of the American Wrestling Association. Yeah, I, I wanted that kind of backup. I, I'm, you know, for all my, my, my kidding aside, I, I'm very humble when it comes to this because... I also know that there are people that have done much more uh, impressive work than me. And not only that, but I have a certain impediment to overcome, I think, with some some readers who may prejudge me, because I work for WWE, mm-hmm. as being, you know, just kind of a shill and maybe not somebody who is really qualified. And, you know, I think, unfortunately, that there can sometimes be a stigma there. And so I wanted to combat that by bringing in people whose opinions I really did respect and wanted to, to, to comment on what I was writing about. So Meltzer, like you said, Tim Hornbaker, Scott Teal, um, Steve Yoey, Mike Chapman, um, and I'll, I'll forget people, Bill Apter I talked to, Evan Ginsberg, who's the, who is the producer of the movie The Wrestler. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I talked to as many of these guys as I could get a hold of, and some talent as well, too. But but the the historians were really special to me to to get in touch with these guys and and bend their ears about this. Meltzer not only wrote the forward, he was kind enough to talk to me for something like two hours, and I just kind of bent his ear until he couldn't take it anymore, and he had to say, all right, I have to go do other things now. 
because now, I was trying to be as thorough as I could be. Mm-hmm. Now, was you know, I mean, making a book, of course, you got to edit out some stuff. I mean, there's always going to be something left out on the cutting room floor. Do you uh, do you have any ideas or intentions to maybe uh, expand upon what you uh, you have put in this book? Maybe uh, some some bonuses, some B sides, if you will. And if uh, I'm going to use a term from the the record business, well, that that's entirely up to my publisher. Because I'll tell you what, I had to cut out about. Seven chapters, if you could believe it. Seven chapters worth of content, because this book is part of a series, you see, the FAQ series. Mm -hmm. And there's a set kind of page limit that they could do. So rather than trim everything down and give short shrift to things I had already written, I kind of made the hard choice to to cut out certain sections that I just honestly felt were probably of a lesser tier of importance. And so if I'm ever called on to do a second edition, which I would love to do, mm-hmm. um, I will put all that stuff back in. I was going to do a chapter just about the history of wrestling magazines. I was going to do a chapter on kind of the most memorable arenas or venues in wrestling. And, God, I was going to do something on, um, you know, I really didn't get into too much international beyond Japan and Mexico, but I wanted to even get into, like, the European wrestling scene in Australia, New Zealand, couldn't really get into that. Um, I was going to do a glossary of all different kind of maneuvers and things like that, which I thought would be fun to do. But again, just uh, just ran out of space. Ran out of space. Attention, Backbeat Books. If you're listening, anybody, a representative, it needs a sequel. It's uh, it, This first one is great, but there can always be room for an expansion. Uh, hey, what's going on with you aside from putting out the book? Uh, what, what else have you got cooking here these days? Well, I'm I'm not in the really in the the writing business full time anymore. I, I WWE is a tough act to follow, you know. So, <laughs> so after leaving there, after leaving there and spending a little too much time in cubicles writing about stuff that I had no passion or interest in, um, I really decided to get into something that I was passionate about. And my original goal, which was teaching, believe it or not, I studied English literature in college, and my goal was to teach English. But the whole WWE, you know, dream come true thing, kind of sidetracked me for quite some time. So I really felt like this is my signal to get back to what my original goal, career goal was. So I'm teaching these days. I teach English and uh, uh, high school English. And my sure. students are very excited to have a published author as their <laughs> teacher right now. And it's kind of fun to bring the book in and, and show it off and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so I've been doing that. I, I still write a lot on the side. I'm even I don't want to. I'm not going to say too much because I'm in the midst of trying to negotiate a second book in the FAQ series. It would not be a wrestling book. Mm-hmm. It would be something different. But again, I, I'll be able to say more about that if I know it's definitely going to happen. But sure. I'm putting a proposal together, and it's you know another area of pop culture that I, I really truly love. It's not wrestling related, but it will be a lot of fun if they allow me to do it. Oh, that'd be great! Uh, and but uh, if it if it does, if it, if this things works out, I mean, I'd love to interview you for for other projects here at our radio station. Uh, if, you know, anything pop culture would be excellent. Thank you. I mean, I love talking about wrestling history, as you could tell. I, oh. I could I could talk about that all day. So anytime yeah. you want to talk about that stuff, I'm your man. Yeah, we we've gotten close to our one hour Broadway here. We're in the closing uh, moments of it. Uh, is there anything else that you would uh, like to get across uh, for the listener today? Uh, the mic is yours, my friend. Yes, I would just like to say, uh, well, if, you, if you're interested in the book, it is for sale on Amazon.com. You can also find out everything you want to know about the book on Facebook. If you look up Pro Wrestling FAQ on Facebook, 
I update that page constantly with news and information. And you can follow me on Twitter at B underscore S-O-L. All righty. Uh, pro wrestling uh, fact, all that's left to know about the world's most entertaining spectacle. I say, I call it everything from Hackenschmidt to Hornswoggle. <laughs> Why didn't I think of that? Damn it. Well, for a small fee. Oh, no, forget it. I'm, 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 not, I'm, not, I'm not an ad man. But I do want to thank you, uh, Brian Solomon, for coming in, talking some wrestling. But the time flies when we just get going and we get into a certain topic matter and, and, and just kind of all the branches from the pro wrestling tree started extending out in our 60. Thank you so much. It was really, truly a pleasure. For Wrestling Memories, I'm Glenn Broggett.